We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you on this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by two researchers from the Yukon Alcohol Research Center, Dr. Victor Hasselbrock. He is Yukon Health Vice Chair of Psychiatry and Principal Investigator at the Yukon Alcohol Research Center, and Dr. Lance Bauer, Yukon Health Professor of Psychiatry and Associate Scientific Director of the Yukon Alcohol Research Center. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Great to be here. Well, first of all, gentlemen, what does the Yukon Alcohol Research Center do? The center has been in existence since 1978 and focuses on the theme of etiology and treatment of alcohol abuse and alcohol-related problems. Consequently, as our center has grown over the years and consistent with that theme, We have focused on basic science aspects as well as the application of that to clinical problems. So we are uh, really one of of the, and probably the only center that that does that, has a very strong basic science component. Uh, Sometimes we'll look at uh, alcohol problems down at the molecular level, but we also are focused on uh, new developing new treatments and sometimes even into policy. Dr. Bauer, what are you working on today? Well, maybe just to expand a bit on Dr. Hesselbrock's point, uh, what, what does the center do? And then I'll get more directly to you, to your question. Uh, over the years, uh, perhaps over the past 37 years or so, the, the Alcohol Research Center has also had an educational mission. Uh, we have trained more than 50 uh, Uh, physicians or psychiatrists to perform alcohol research. Uh, We have, you know, extended our educational efforts nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Members of our center have participated, for example, in in writing the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder and before that alcohol dependence and, and alcohol abuse. Dr. Hasselbrock, you were there at the ground level. Yes. How have things evolved over the years? <laughs> well, I think part of our our success uh, in in the, the center really is that while uh, as one of the founders, if you would, or one of the people there from the ground level, uh, our focus really has not changed. So we've we've not uh, varied very much from our theme. But at the same time, what we've done is bring in new investigators on a regular basis and also employed cutting-edge technologies as they've been developed in other scientific fields to uh, come to bear on the, the, the problems of alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction. Early on is a good example when we were very concerned about the role of genetics in uh, contributing to the severity of the disorder. Uh, in 1978, 1980, Genetics was defined by whether or not the person had a biological relative who was affected. 
today, of course, we now can scan the entire human genome and identify not only genes but fragments of genes called uh, SNPs, if you would, uh, uh, you know, very small, minute uh, portions of the human genome that may be related to uh, consumption, uh, developing alcohol problems, et cetera. It should be noted that Yukon's Alcohol Research Center is the longest continuously operating in the country because you keep getting federal research dollars. How competitive is it out there to, to keep winning that money? <laughs> it's extremely competitive. If uh, Just to brag a bit about our center, when we started in uh, 1978, we were one of nine centers uh, that was funded initially by the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we're, we're the only survivor of that group uh, of now of, uh, I think it's 15 or 16 different centers, but we're the only one with that legacy or, or history of, of being one of the initial ones and still working. <laughs> what are some of the research findings that you're most proud of? <clears throat> I I, th I think there are several. Uh, perhaps one that's that's most relevant to uh, persons facing the, the alcohol use disorder uh, is the fact that our center was was one of three major contributors to the FDA's approval of naltrexone as a treatment agent for alcohol use disorder. At the time naltrexone was approved, there was, was only only one other agent that had been approved, and that had been in the pipeline for about 40 years, and that agent is disulfiram, which is not typically used anymore. And even at the time that naltrexone was approved, disulfiram was was disappearing in frequency of use. Yes. Uh, we, we've also identified a number of, of, of candidate genes that increase risk for disorder and also increase risk for relapse among those who have the disorder. It doesn't explain a large amount of the variance. It is not perfectly predictive. Uh, but that, along with other risk factors, certainly provides clinicians with, with a better window into, patient, uh, into deciding which patients should get maybe more aggressive or more expensive treatment. How has the, the thinking changed about alcohol use since you started in 1978? Uh, well, I, I think that, that there's uh, several answers to that. One is from the general public uh, many individuals still believe that it's a sign of moral weakness uh, that uh, people can really just stop drinking any time that they want. Uh, from the medical community, we've, we've moved beyond that, fortunately, and many of our uh, colleagues across specialties, we're in, uh, Dr. Bauer and I are in psychiatry, but we work very closely and have over the years with people in anesthesiology, uh, people in general medicine, people in neurology, et cetera. And it is now widely known and accepted that alcohol problems, in fact, are, uh, if you would, a medical condition that require a multi-pronged uh, approach to its treatment. And as Dr. Bauer was saying about the, our discovery or our contributions to the discovery of naltrexone as a treatment, uh, yes, that, that is exactly uh, the, the current state of the art going from, if you would, back in the 1970s, 1980s, where AA uh, was the primary modality of treatment. 
Now, uh, AA is often combined with medication uh, in more formal treatment settings with a, a variety of other behavioral types of therapies so that we can really treat uh, you know, the, the person and some of the particular precipitants of, uh, of, of the problem. So it's, we've gone from a, a rather straightforward, simple treatment to something that's now really quite complex. And we hope to be able to add in the genetic part too, particularly with respect to pharmacotherapies and, and um, you know, medicines similar to cancer treatments and, and a variety of other uh, conditions. It's very likely that certain genes are going to allow individuals to respond better to some medications than, than uh, we had been able to do previously. How important are genetics in determining whether or not someone might be predisposed to have an issue with alcohol? There are individual differences, but but we know from studies of twins, from studies of people with and without family history, that genetics probably explains about 50% of the risk. Uh, and other factors explain the risk in other in other patients. So it doesn't necessarily mean because, say, someone's father had a problem with alcohol that you're going to have, but you should be looking for warning signs, I, I suppose. Yes, just, just as, we, we, as if we were talking about risk for hypertension or risk for diabetes, family history plays a role, but it doesn't explain all risk for that disorder. What are some of the other risks? Well, there, there are many. There are... You know, there are Certain personality profiles, uh, an individual who's more prone to risk-taking uh, or impulsiveness is certainly at risk. Uh, individuals who, um, um, you know, certainly possess other psychiatric disorders, particularly depression, bipolar disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, those individuals are statistically speaking at increased risk. Uh, there, there is a large literature on PTSD and alcoholism. Uh, the, the, actually, the comorbidity between the two is strikingly high. It is another significant risk factor. Yeah, I would add to that that there are a certain uh, number of environmental risk factors as well. Uh, because many people with alcohol problems don't have uh, comorbid or, or coexisting psychiatric conditions or medical conditions, but... Uh, one of the things to consider is your friends and your family. Uh, many uh, young folks, particularly as they go off to college, to go off to armed services, uh, et cetera, get involved with uh, groups of individuals who drink heavily. And truth is that if anyone drinks heavily for an extended period of time, the, the risk for developing alcohol dependence is extremely high. Um at the same time, there are other professions, uh, certainly among uh, law enforcement, there's uh, a, 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 an increased incidence. Among certain medical professions, there's an increased incidence. So there are significant environmental factors on top of the genetic risk factors that uh, individuals need to be uh, cognizant of as they, uh, you know, if you would, develop their drinking career. What are some of the warning signs from you know, that line from maybe being a social drinker to having a problem? 
<laughs> well, there are two that sort of stand out. One is uh, having one of your uh, local uh, policemen stop you as you're driving down the road and say, "Hey, guess what? You you now here, here's a DWI. Come to court." And if if uh, you know that's a very significant one. The other one is blackouts. Uh, people who drink heavily and then the next morning can't remember what they were doing the the night before. It's particularly dangerous for uh, female drinkers, but also for males as well. And uh, once that happens, you you know that you're uh, drinking way too much uh, than is good for you. And 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 another risk factor to add to that list is just simply a preoccupation with alcohol. You know, spending more time um, in bars in, in, in with friends drinking. Yes, an increasing focus right, on that. An increasing focus on alcohol. Sort of that peer pressure. Yes. Yep. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dr. Victor Hasselbrock. He is vice chair of psychiatry at UConn Health, also principal investigator of the UConn Alcohol Research Center, and Dr. Lance Bauer, UConn Health professor of psychiatry and associate scientific director of the UConn Alcohol Research Center. Looking at heavy alcohol use what do we know about what that results in in terms of other health problems it's a very good question and i think it'd be important for your listeners to really understand that as a young person particularly in your 20s you really seem to be invincible or think you're invincible to all sorts of insults whether that's drinking too much pardon me exercising too much eating too much etc I can stop whenever I want, things will be fine, and the body, in fact, does recover. Um, in our work with uh, people with alcohol problems over the years, we have seen even as early as uh, you know, 35, 38 years old, uh, people beginning to have liver uh, complications. You know, uh, if you would, a fatty liver, not frank cirrhosis, but fatty liver, uh, heavy drinking causes essential hypertension, so blood pressure can go up. It is related to a variety of cancers in both men and women. And one of the things that's really striking, uh, I think it would be of interest to uh, the listeners, is that in people who drink heavily uh, from their late teens, early 20s, into middle age and beyond, the all-cause mortality is striking in a group that we've been following over the last 30 some odd years um, we're, we're seeing as many as two-thirds of them have died by the age of 60 and that's from cancers from heart disease uh, from accidents of all kinds from suicides homicides etc but think about that uh, how many people <laughs> really expect to be dead by the, by the age of 60. But among uh, chronic, uh, drink, chronic heavy drinkers, uh, the mortality rate is very, very high. How do you recruit volunteers for your research? Currently, uh, we do uh, recruit into our treatment studies. We have two ongoing treatment studies, and Dr. Bauer can comment on those in, in, in a moment. But typically, we'll uh, go on to uh, you know uh, the media, uh, public media. Sometimes we'll use uh, radio, TV, uh, a variety of ads. We do have uh, Facebook pages as well, so that individuals are interested in that. 
we do get a number of people who, uh, through word of mouth, individuals or families that have volunteered to be in our studies will comment to others and uh, will invite those individuals to come and see us. It's all very confidential, of course. And if they meet the inclusion criteria for different studies, we're more than happy to uh, have them participate. We offer uh, free treatment because all of our research is funded by the federal government. Uh, we are currently recruiting volunteers for two treatment studies. One study offers counseling. It involves multiple visits to the health center. The other study involves counseling plus a new medication. And if individuals are interested in uh, obtaining more information about those studies, they can either call 860-679-2745 or 860-679-7000. If people are listening to this and, and they heard the warning signs and they said, gee, that might sound like me, how do you reach out to get help? There's certainly a stigma associated with having an alcohol problem. What's the first step to getting help? I think the, the first step, and we've seen this time and time again, is recognizing that uh, the, the level at which uh, the individual is drinking is potentially a problem for them. And uh, how, does they, how does they know that? I mean, sometimes you're uh, warned by your spouse or other family members. It could be that uh, your employer has decided that you're not showing up on time, leaving too early, maybe not functioning at the level you need. Or, uh, <laughs> again, you've gotten a, a DWI or two or gotten into an altercation and uh, the police have been involved. But really, it's recognizing that problem and being willing to take that first step. That first step is absolutely critical. And one of the things that we see is that individuals who are willing to take that first step, in fact, do really quite well in, in uh, our treatment programs. Dr. Bauer, anything to add? I would advise any person concerned about whether or not they have a problem to have a serious conversation with their primary care doctor. Hmm. Uh, and, and move from there. There are, there are a number of resources that are available. They're not necessarily very well advertised, but that's usually a good first step. As researchers in this field, what's the most common question you get from people who, who aren't in the field? I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek and with a glint in my eye, but typically when I've given talks at uh, PTOs or other uh, organizational meetings out to the community, People will come up to me and say, I have a friend. And I said, and I know immediately then that it's either a family member or themselves that they're quite interested uh, in, uh, in uh, learning more about different treatment options, different treatment facilities, uh, et cetera. It is not at all uncommon for Dr. Bauer or I to be approached even at work in, uh, in, uh, at the university with the individuals who uh, have a family member or whatever. And so we do have a, a variety of re referral sources. Yes. I'd like to just follow up just for a minute on, on uh, what Lance was saying about seeing your primary care uh, person. We, uh, and through Dr. Babor, who's not with us today, have developed a, uh, a really a screening and brief intervention program 
so that individuals who might come to their primary care doc who might see their uh, might see a, an advanced practice uh, nurse, a social worker, et cetera, we have developed screening techniques that uh, allow us to uh, inform the individual about our level of concern and whether we feel that they should be referred to treatment. But th- this this is something, uh, you know, th- this particular program is now in place in a variety of emergency departments, primary care clinics, um, and uh, other uh, service uh, providers who can uh, – help individuals, you know, once they're interested and feel a concern. I could be wrong, but it it seems to me that often drinking habits begin when one is in college. Has that culture, that drinking culture changed over the years on college campuses, do you think? Absolutely not. (laughs) It is still a a major, major uh, issue. I'm not sure if you have children and how old they are. But uh, what I like to say to uh, individuals, if you have teenagers that are probably around the age of 13, ship them off to someplace else and don't invite them back home until they're 20. It's that, that the 13 to 20-year age where kids start drinking is likely where they're going to have their first tobacco is likely when they're going to try marijuana for the first time. They're likely to have their first sexual experience, probably have their first encounter with the law, et cetera. And this is why parents get gray. But it's that early period where the initiation occurs. And then often by the time uh, your, 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 your children go off to college, and, you know, they're 17, 18 years of age, they've already had that initial experience. And this without uh, more direct parental supervision, as you indicated, is where the the drinking really does escalate and gets to be more problematic. Has there been any research into if it's better to have alcohol be a taboo subject at home or to kind of give children an experience, at least maybe with with parents drinking around them? There has been uh, quite a few studies on that topic, both here as well as in Europe. Many parents say, well, uh, give them alcohol and let them, you know, under supervision, let them feel what it's like and taste what it's like, et cetera, et cetera. There, There does not seem to be any relationship between that and increased risk or reduced risk. Again, uh, it's when your children get off into their peer group who may be more adventurous in a variety of ways where the drinking really begins to escalate. And certainly in, in college, in the military, uh, in, in other situations where there are uh, large groups of young folks, it, it, something that you you hope at that point that you've given them enough education to to monitor their own drinking and yes you can participate in the social events etc cetera, etc cetera, but know when to say when as they say you began your work before the drinking age increased from 18 to 21 i believe did you see any change when that occurred <laughs> i'm one of those individuals old enough that when I, I was a young youngster starting out the drinking age was 18 it went to 21 then it went back to 18 and uh, what's interesting is that i don't think that the level of drinking among adolescents in that age range has changed at all uh, most of even with the drinking age of 21, 18 year olds drink, and they get it by having older friends who provide that. Um, 
is they're much younger. They often, pardon me, will borrow from their parents, et cetera, et cetera. If people want to learn more about the Yukon Alcohol Research Center, where can they go online? Uh, we do have a website that, that is online. Uh, uh, just if you go to the uh, UCH uh, website, the University of Connecticut Health website, go into psychiatry, and then uh, follow the, the trail down to the alcohol center. He is Dr. Victor Hasselbrock, Yukon Health Vice Chair of Psychiatry and Principal Investigator of the Yukon Alcohol Research Center, joined by Dr. Lance Bauer, Yukon Health Professor of Psychiatry and Associate Scientific Director of the Yukon Alcohol Research Center. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.